0: have about the land of Israel, which says, the days are prolonged and every wisdom fails. Tell them therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision, for no one shall there be any false vision or flattering division, divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed, for in your days, O rebellious house, I will say to the the word, and perform it, says the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the visions that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of." Times far off. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord None of my words will be postponed any more, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God.
1: When you think of Proverbs, you probably don't think of the book of Ezekiel. Yet there are three Proverbs that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel that we are going to be studying this evening and invite you to be taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Ezekiel as we look at these Proverbs. As As was mentioned, these are going to be elements that contain some statements about judgment and also some condemnation for how Judah was living during these, this time that Ezekiel was prophesying. And as we are going to see that Judah was acting very corruptly and God was angered by Judah. Ezekiel was prophesying during the days of the divided kingdom, during the final days of the divided kingdom. Only the two tribes, the southern nation of Judah, was left. The ten northern tribes of Israel had already been taken care of by the Assyrians. And now the Babylonians were issuing the greatest threat upon God's people. Nebuchadnezzar was ruling in Babylon. And he was bringing Jerusalem under siege. And Judah was already beginning her captivity. Ezekiel, we probably are very familiar with, in that he is one of the major prophets because of the length of his book. And he began prophesying during the Babylonian captivity, which occurred in three different waves. That you had the first wave of the royal upper class people, like Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we sometimes call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ezekiel would later go into captivity, predicting the siege of Jerusalem and its destruction. And Ezekiel prophesied during the exile of Jehoiakim, the king, during that time. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, if you want to hold your place there in the book of Ezekiel and turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, this is the description of Jerusalem in the same time. It says in 2nd Chronicles chapter 36 and in verse 9 Jehoiakim was 8 years old when he became king and he reigned 3 months and 10 days in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord at the turn of the year King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord and he made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem Continuing on in verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. What a sad time for God's people that here God is pleading with his people, the Jewish people, to come back to repent. God is extending uh, the timeline as much as he can. He is putting off the inevitable as long as he can to give space for repentance, to give time for Judah to come to himself and to come back to God. And this is the time that Ezekiel is one of those prophets, one of those messengers that God has sent that the people are scoffing at. And they don't want to listen. Jeremiah is named explicitly, but others that were coming until there was no remedy, until there was nothing else that could be done or said. Because it was that determined. They were determined to not repent and come back to God. And as pitiful of a time as that might seem, reading the account here in Second Chronicles, the book of Ezekiel is actually one of great hope. And it is one that it shows the true spiritual condition of God's people while giving them hope for God's faithfulness to fulfill His promise that God is going to bring a shepherd to unify Israel. And He's going to, this shepherd is going to be from the line of David. A very messianic book that prophesies about the work of Jesus and how He is going to come and shepherd His people and unify his people. But the book of Ezekiel is a tough book to understand because it has numerous visions and uh, things like that you might think are more suited for the book of Revelation. But these visions often are for the purpose of giving a visual in our mind to help us really understand the true spiritual condition of God's people during Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel himself was a priest who received visions about the temple being defiled and God's presence leaving the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 10, it's a very sad picture, but God's Spirit leaves the temple. Ezekiel sees that in that vision where God is abandoning His people because His people have abandoned Him. And... It's a very sad picture. But in the opening chapters of Ezekiel, early on in the book, God speaks with Ezekiel and he's very critical of Judah's behavior. They were in denial of their impending destruction. Their denial went so far as for them to popularize proverbs that were spoken in Judah, that were saying God's not very faithful, God's not doing what He has promised He's doing, why hasn't God acted already? Or they are trying to escape their own responsibility for sin. They are trying to avoid the personal responsibility and the part that they played by reciting some of these Proverbs. And then also we see that Ezekiel provides a proverb from God, a divine proverb that the people of Judah needed to learn the lesson from and that explained why God was doing what he was doing to them and why Judah was going to be punished. These three proverbs that have mentioned, they're short pithy statements that explain Judah's true spiritual condition while also correcting their misunderstanding. So this afternoon I want us to look at these Proverbs and learn from them because I think we can learn some very important lessons. The first one that we see is there in Ezekiel chapter 12 where Ezekiel says in verse 21, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, what is this proverb you have you people have concerning the land of Israel, saying, the days are long and every vision fails. Can you imagine to be at this point in this juncture in Israel's history where they are in complete denial of God's prophetic Power of God's messengers, that God has sent many different prophets to them, warning them about their destruction, about if they would not repent, if they would not come back to God, then there is going to be destruction. There's going to be punishment. The Babylonians are coming. And this was not something new with Jeremiah. It wasn't something that Ezekiel dreamed up. This was prophesied by Isaiah, the prophet. Many years before, and other prophets that spoke about the coming of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians that this was very much warned about the people of Israel and Judah they knew that this was going to happen, and yet they still popularized this proverb that the days are long, every vision fails that the days that of this Coming of judgment that God is supposedly sending, it's long ways away. And it's as if it's never going to come. They were in denial of God's the imminent nature of God's punishment for their sin, giving them a false sense of hope and security. The days are long, denies the nearness of Judah's capture and captivity in Babylon. In other words, they're saying it's a long ways away from happening. They're saying that it's not about to happen. It's nowhere near coming. Every vision fails. Denies the prophetic messages. And they're coming to pass. God has abandoned us. And even those who claim to be His prophets are wrong. So who is there to listen to? That's what they are saying. The irony in all of this is that they failed to listen to the prophets of God, that he did sin, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel that he will make this proverb disappear from Judah's collective memory. And while he's offering a counterpoint of view, notice in verse 23 just following this verse in verse 23, it says, Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb cease so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel, but tell them the days draw near as well as the fulfillment of every vision. God's saying it's the exact opposite of what they're saying. God is offering the counter proverb for them that The days are drawing near. The time that I have warned you about through my prophets, it is about to happen. It's imminent. As well as the fulfillment of every vision. That everything that they have warned about, the prophecies that you have heard that have been foretold, it is about to happen. It's very near. In verse 25, He says, For I, the Lord, will speak, and whatever word I speak, will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. God does not deny that He was slow to bring about the prophetic uh, judgments against Judah. He doesn't deny that it was taking a while. But just because it was taking a while does not mean that it was never going to happen. And just because it was taking a while doesn't mean that it was a weakness with God. In fact, I would argue that it's the exact opposite. That it was out of God's tender mercy and His love and His desire for Judah to repent that he was giving them more than enough time than he was obligated to. It is in God's very being and in his very nature that he wants to offer forgiveness. He wants people to repent. He wants people, while also holding them accountable, for their wickedness he wants them to come back to him he wants them to turn from their evil and he is oh so compassionate and slow to anger he does not deny slowness and slowness is not a bad thing in the book of exodus in exodus chapter 34 in exodus the 34th chapter In Exodus chapter 34, after the children of Israel had sinned with the establishment of the golden calf and that creation in Exodus chapter 34 and in verse 6, the Lord is speaking with Moses as Moses is defending Israel and pleading for them that God would be merciful. God says, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord is. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." that what you have is this wonderful description of God and His mercy and His compassion, His love, and how He is slow to anger. And yet there's also this tension that is created because He's not going to allow wickedness to go ignored. He's not going to allow that to be unpunished. And so while He's slow to anger, He's also going to hold people accountable for their wickedness, for their sin. And how does that that tension that is created, how does God deal with it? By his slowness, by his length of time, allowing time to pass, giving people more than enough time. And by giving more time, more people can enjoy the blessing of God's mercy and forgiveness. And fewer people will be eternally lost and condemned. We may think, well, that was what people were saying back then. That's not something that people say today. No, you don't see that as a headline on newspapers or on TVs. The Days are long and every vision fails. If you were to go tell people that, they'd be like, what does that mean? But it certainly how we treat God isn't it certainly it's what Peter warned about in 2nd Peter chapter 3 in 2nd Peter the third chapter the apostle Peter warned about people displaying the same kind of attitude in his generation in 2nd Peter chapter 3 and in verse 3 he says know this first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. (laughs) Peter's saying, people are going to begin asking, when is Jesus coming again? When is Jesus coming again? And they're going to say, since he hasn't come again, and you can just go all the way back to the beginning, and everything has just always been happening as it always has. Right? The sun rises in the east, sets in the west, and day after day, every day is the same. Still no appearing of Jesus, right? And Peter. He says in verse 5 when they maintain this it escapes their notice how convenient you know those kinds of people that they just kind of ignore over the of the times that don't fit their narrative when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. They don't want to talk about that moment in Genesis chapter 6 when God flooded the earth and destroyed it because that doesn't fit that whole idea. That God is somehow passive and that He's just watching the world turn and that He has never done anything to deal with this. In verse 7, But by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter firmly tells us that there is a day that God, just as He judged the world in Noah's day with water, there is a day in which He is going to judge the world and it's going to be completely destroyed not with water but with fire. And he says in verse eight, "But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Basically, time is nothing to God. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." That why is God giving so much time? Why is he a- appearing to be slow? Because time means nothing to God as it as in the same way that it means something to us. And that it's not that he's late. It's that he's going to be right on time when he wants it to happen. And he is allowing more people to hear his word and his gospel to be saved. Because time is of the essence. And the more time that is granted, the more time that is allowed is beneficial for us. In verse 15, if you skip down, as He continues to talk about the Lord coming like a thief in the night and things of that nature. In verse 15, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And God's patience is nothing to stomp our feet at and get mad about. It's something to praise God for and say thank you for more time. You see, sometimes... We think God ought to operate on our timetable. We get caught up in how things seem to always just occur as they always have. And we feel that God ought to do things when we think they need to be done. And Peter says, we don't need to fall into that trap. We can't afford to fall into that kind of thinking. Because when God is giving us time, we need to be thankful for it. Just because it hasn't come to pass yet doesn't mean it will never come to pass. God has told us through His apostles Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that his son will come again, there will be a day of judgment when we will give an account for how we have lived our life before God and Christ. And just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it will never happen. We don't need to be guilty of having this attitude that the days are long and every vision fails. We don't need to have that mindset thinking, well, it's never going to happen. If we do, then we are showing our disdain for God and His Word. And while this earth exists, it is only due to the long suffering of God and His desire for us to repent. Because if God was anything but long-suffering, He would have wiped us out a long time ago. The days are long and every vision fails. That's not something that ought to be uttered by God's people. You continue on in the book of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 16, and we come across a second proverb. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God issues a proverb to Ezekiel that he would explain the true condition that Judah found himself in. This is not one that the people proudly boasted in. This was something that God was saying, this is why I'm coming upon you in judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and in verse 44, God is... is speaking to Ezekiel and tells him, Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, like mother, like daughter. In verse 45, You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria who lives north of you with her daughters and your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Obviously, this is a passage that is Speaking in some figurative language. He's not talking about Judah having literal mother and father and daughters or children, that kind of thing. He's talking about the influence of the nations around them the Amorites, Canaanites, the Hittites, Samaria, the northern tribes of Israel. Sodom and Gomorrah. How these other places. God has already judged them for their wickedness. And he's saying. Judah you broke the mold. (laughs) You broke the mold. Like mother like daughter. You fit in the same category. Only you are infinitely worse than them. You think about that for a moment. What a slap in the face to their pride, right? Because this was Judah. They had some good kings. They also had some really bad kings. They had the lineage of David though they could boast in David they could take some pride that they still had Jerusalem and the temple and God is saying you have corrupted yourself just like everyone around you that I've already judged only you have been worse Judah turned aside from God to follow idols, not learning the lessons from the other nations around them. Instead of being the obedient covenant people of Yahweh, they were disobedient and sinful. They rejected God. Judah was not only acting like the northern tribes of Samaria and the people of Sodom, they were worse than those people. God destroyed Samaria. He destroyed Sodom. And God was going to do the very same thing to Judah. In Ezekiel chapter 7, in Ezekiel the, the 7th chapter and in verse 20, as we are given some insight into the temple and the temple complex, there is Ezekiel is prophesying in verse 20, says they they transformed the beauty of his ornaments into pride and they made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. In verse 27, the king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with horror and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I will deal with them and by their judgments, I will judge them and they will know that I am the Lord. God is saying that everything that I am bringing against them, there is evidence for. You can go back and you can see it play out. You can see how unfaithful they have been. And Ezekiel was condemning Judah because of their spiritual wickedness. As is pictured in Ezekiel chapter 16. And in verse 36, it's described as spiritual nakedness. In Ezekiel chapter 16, and verse 35, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Not, O my people, but O harlot. Verse 36, Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols. What a wonderful description. That doesn't sound like the people of God, though, does it? He goes on in verse 37, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. Thus, I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood, are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And even though this is speaking in highly figurative language, this is giving us insight into the sins that Judah had normalized. Sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness. Greed, hatred, murder, bloodshed. And God is saying no more. Like mother, like daughter. If you're going to behave like that, then you're going to get the same judgment that others got. And while there is figurative language here, There's also the sins that are described are very much something that we need to be sure that we stay away from. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, as he's talking about sexual behavior, he says, but immorality and or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That these things shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence as you guys, because you are saints. You, as the church of God, you are holy. You are sanctified. You're supposed to be distinct and separate from all the other nations. From all the other people. You're not supposed to behave like them. He says in verse 4, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You're supposed to be different. This kind of sinful behavior has no place among you. It's not fitting. It's not appropriate. Because you're a child of God. He says in verse 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And if you're going to behave in such a way, then you're going to be alienating yourself from the kingdom of God. The same is true. Isn't it? For us today. And if we're going to behave like the world, then we are separating ourselves from the kingdom of God. And we are going to get the same punishment that the world gets. The book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, a book that very much mirrors uh, the book of Ephesians in some of its language. In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 5, Paul says here, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That kind of behavior is what idolatry really is. He says in verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. There's no place for that kind of behavior. There's no place for that kind of thought and those kinds of actions among the people of God the people that God has saved and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. But would God be able to look upon us and and His church and see a distinction between us and the world? Or are we just products of the world? Have we compromised the truth have we mixed worldliness with a little bit of Bible and created our own system of idolatry? Would God say to us, like mother, like daughter? And your mother's the world? Is that, what he, is that what he would say? Jesus taught us that we need to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we are not to become like the world, we're supposed to be different than the world. While the world is in darkness, we are to be what shines as light. We should not be corrupted. And yet, the people of God can become corrupted. We need to be sure that we're living how God wants us to live. This proverb in Ezekiel chapter 16, it's a very sad one. It's a very sad proverb that God was issuing. He's in chapter 12, the proverb there that was being circulated among Judah, and God says, Hold it. I'm going to end that proverb, but here's the proverb that you need to know. Here's the proverb that you need to realize is what is really going on. And that's why I'm going to punish you for it. And then the third proverb, probably the proverb that is most familiar to us as students of the Bible and students of the book of Ezekiel, is the proverb that's found in Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and in verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. God is again responding to the popular thought in Judah's day. This false proverb was being circulated. And you can see as this proverb indicates, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. It was a proverb that blamed God and Judah's previous generations for their punishment and impending captivity. They're saying all the things that God is bringing upon us, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve the way God is treating us. Because it was somebody else's fault. They are blaming God in this accusation of being unfair with them. While also the proverb was circumventing their own personal responsibility their own sin this proverb encouraged a victim mentality you know people who might be like that a little bit they always tend to play the victim that is what was being encouraged by this proverb it's not our fault it's God's fault Or it's someone else's fault. Certainly not mine. (laughs) Now, someone could argue that they were simply reading their Bible. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, and in verse 5, one of the things that was warned about, that if there was sin and idolatry introduced into Israel that God would visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations. So someone could say, well, they were just reading their Bible, weren't they? Well, that first of all assumes that the statement in Exodus has to be taken literally. In Exodus chapter 34, In Exodus chapter 34, that passage that we looked at a little while ago, in which it also uses that phrase that God would visit the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It would also go on to talk about how God would be faithful to His covenant for a thousand generations. So again, if that is... Literal or not, we, that could be up for debate. But doesn't God punish the wicked even for three to four generations after them? Well, yes, certainly in a large part of the Old Testament. On a national, corporate level, that sins that involve the majority of people have generational effects and consequences that may not be felt until many years later. And God's punishments should become an example and a deterrent. Think about Joshua chapter 7. You don't have time to go and study that passage of Scripture, but Achan, one man, he took of the things that were supposed to be devoted to God He took of the plunder from Jericho. And all of Israel felt that effect. One person's sin affected the many. However, God does not save whole nations or whole communities. Whole nations, whole communities are built upon the backs of individuals. And what... Ezekiel chapter 18 is going to do is going to correct that thought. That, and it's going to emphasize this thought that it's individuals that build up the whole. And that it's going to be individual action that is going to be accounted for. Which the Old Testament also emphasized in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and in verse 16, Moses had this to say Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. On an individual basis, is what Moses was arguing for here. In Exodus, in those passages that we looked at, I think he's talking about corporate Israel, the nation. But Moses in Deuteronomy is talking about individual sin and choice. And the people of Judah in that generation of Ezekiel's day were more wicked than previous generations. We notice that statement in Ezekiel chapter 16 where Judah was worse than all the other nations around them that God had already judged in times past. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 13, he says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That once you begin the spiral downward, there's no limiting factor there. It's only going to go from bad to worse, there's nothing that could stop it. And as a result of the sin that was introduced in Judah, they in that generation were worse than previous generations. So they can't go be, they can't not go about denying that they have sinned. They can't blame all of their situation upon previous generations. And as a result, God's message to Ezekiel was a lesson about the personal responsibility, the personal choices that people make to destroy their relationship with God. He says in verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. And then he goes on to talk about if a man would practice righteousness and justice and abstains from idolatry, If he does what's good and right and fair, then God is going to bless him. And he's going to be righteous. He is righteous. And he will surely live. And he uses this illustration in verse 5 through 9 of this man who is faithful. And then that man has a son, the second generation. That man has a violent son, he says in verse 10, who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother and he basically lives the exact opposite way of his father. That the second generation, the son, he does everything wrong. He's wicked. He's evil. He's unfaithful to God. He's unfaithful to his fellow man. He's unfaithful to his family. He's unfair, he's unrighteous, he's just plain wicked. And he says, "His blood will be on his own head. He will be put to death." But that guy has a son. You might expect him to follow in the footsteps of his his dad, right? No, he's going to be more like his grandpa. The first generation. He says in verse 14, Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. He avoids idolatry. He avoids sin and wickedness. And in verse 18, He uh, Or verse 17, rather, He will not die for His Father's iniquity. He will surely live. And so, you have three generations. The first one, the first generation, he's a good guy. The second guy, he's evil. Nothing good about him. The third generation, he's a good guy. In the first one he lives, In the third one he lives, he's blessed by God. The second one is going to be judged by God. In verse 20, this person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. The righteous will live. The unrighteous will die. The righteous may turn from their righteousness to unrighteousness. The unrighteous may turn to righteousness. He says in verse 21, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness... He shall surely live. He shall not die. It's not that one decision or one action determines your whole course for life. That you can turn from your sin and wickedness and you shall be granted life. And so... What we learn is that God holds individual souls responsible for their choices. Individuals are responsible for their choices and their sins. Thus God wants the wicked to repent and to return to Him. At the end of the chapter, in Ezekiel chapter 18, this really boils down to the heart of Ezekiel's message. And what God is imploring for the people of Judah to do. Verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God, repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. God is saying, I implore you to come out of your wickedness, to repent, return to me. Have a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die? God's saying, why will you die? Why will you be lost? Because it's not because I want to put you to death. It's not that I want you to be lost. He's saying, I want you to repent. I want you to come back to me. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Repent and come back to God. The Proverbs that we read in the book of Ezekiel, with this proverb in chapter 18, we learn that we as individuals are responsible for our sin and our choices. What choices have you been making in your life? Have you made the choice to come back to the Lord, your God? God implores for you to come back to Him. He wants you to come back to Him. God wants to save you. God does not want to send anyone to eternal punishment in hell. He wants you to come back. If you're in sin and you're lost, God is imploring for you to come. Come to Him. There's going to be a day in which we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will have to give an account and an answer for what we have done in our life. And every moment that we've had, every opportunity that we've had to repent, it's not a problem with God. It's a blessing from God. He is giving you time and place to come to him. If we can help you in some way this afternoon, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?